suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Hello and welcome back, dear listener. Another episode of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. We are up to episode 377. They just keep Bloody rolling hell. on by. It is 21st of March 2023. We're going to be talking about news and politics and sex and religion, what's gone on in the last seven days. I'm Trevor, a.k.a. The Iron Fist. With me, as always, Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Joe. G'day, listeners. How are you all? We're all well. And Joe, the tech guy, is back as well. Evening all. Right. So what are we going to talk about? Well... Probably submarines. (laughs) (laughs) No, we'd never talk about them. Yes, but in a roundabout way, yes. Yes, we will be. We'll be talking about Paul Keating. Paul Keating going off, yeah. Yeah, and really the reaction to what he said and how he treated the journalists is interesting, even if you ignore the things he had to say about submarines, just the whole social experiment. It was a little bit crass, the way he did treat that journalist. You think so? You know. We'll get on to that in a second. Yeah. Just also, we'll quickly talk about robo debt. We're going to talk about Nazis. And they did not um, see that coming. <laughs> and a few other bits and pieces. Oh, a recent poll came out on The Voice. A few interesting changes in the polls on people's attitudes to The Voice. I also mentioned to you guys, did you consider this at all, but what you would do if you were a benevolent dictator? Any changes you would make in Australia? Did you get a chance to think about that? Were you. I did have a bit of a thing. Good. Okay. We're going to talk about that as well. Is So you can think about that one, dear listener, is if you were suddenly in power as a benevolent dictator in Australia, what changes would you make? So, all right. Before we get on to submarines and Paul Keating, let's quickly, Scott, talk about, shall we? Melbourne? Yes. Mm. So there was a... No, Ukraine. Yes, Ukraine as well. Yeah, everywhere. Brazil, they're everywhere. So, yeah, there was was speaking, some anti-trans sort of activist woman was down there and people came out in support of her and also people came out to protest against her and in support of her was a bunch of about maybe 15, 20 guys all in black giving uh, sort of Nazi salutes obviously intending to promote themselves as Nazis. And I don't think they had swastikas, but they were clearly pro-Nazi. I think swastikas are actually illegal now in um, in Victoria. Yeah, I think they might be as well. No, it wasn't Margaret Court, Dom. (laughs) And so it was, yeah, so the police were holding back the people who were the the contra-protest, the ones who were pro-trans and anti-Nazi, 
mm-hmm. were being held back by the police while these and the and the anti-trans were conducting their well exercising their civic rights, such mm-hmm. as it was. Scenes really, I thought. And there's talk about the Andrews government moving to ban the Nazi salute because of the way the gesture was used in this protest. So. Gentlemen, thoughts on that whole episode and potentially laws, which the other states are considering as well, for for banning people doing a Nazi salute. What do you reckon? I, I've always been against any form of banning protest, banning <coughs> political symbolism, mm. because those hate speech laws can easily be turned around and used against other people. Mm. Yeah, historically, the hate speech laws were used by the powerful to suppress minorities. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think they will be in the future. I I think implementing hate speech laws doesn't protect anybody, at least not in the long term. Mm -hmm. I I think there are better ways. I think social ridicule is considerably better Mm -hmm. rather than making things illegal. Mm. Scott, you sound like you're about to sit on the fence. You've it's got an uncomfortable look things. on your face. It's one of those things. I, I tend to agree with. I tend to agree with Joe, but you know, I do not want to be accused of being pro-Nazi or anything like that. Mm. If you could guarantee the hate speech laws were going to be directed only at Nazis, then mm. I wouldn't have a problem with it. But I do agree that with Joe that you know they have devolved in the past to be used against minorities and that sort of stuff in the in the country so it's pretty difficult when it's a gesture as well yes this this is not even speech as such Mm. as a gesture and there's already in this group a sort of an upside down okay sign is some sort of nazi signal as well these groups yeah and although uh, it's the same as the diving symbol i believe the diving symbol. Yeah, when when somebody when you're diving, somebody goes, "Are you okay?" So so there are perfectly oh, benign I, reasons to make yes. the sign. Right. Okay. Okay. And you could be in under in your scuba gear going, "What are you doing a Nazi signal for?" So, yeah. Look, it's tricky when it's just a gesture, and these people would invariably look at other gestures, although they really want to use the Nazi salute. Very tricky one to go near. Obviously, we don't want people doing things that are going to, you know, we have public nuisance laws, for example, where if people conduct themselves in a way that is against the grain of what's considered common decency, then we already stop that. Like if you were to walk down the street protesting by swearing, using really terrible sailors' language, for example... You'll be locked up if you keep doing it because we do already say we find that offensive and against community standards. And sometimes these community standards change. So 100 years ago, blasphemy, a form of speech that was against community standards, was punishable. But well, these days... It's a separate law. Yeah, well, yes. And, 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 and you, you wouldn't be locked up, I think, these days for swearing in public. Because I believe that the recent court cases, the, the magistrates have said that's the kind of language you'll hear on the street. It's it's no more offensive. Mm. Because mm. I think they've tried to charge people with swearing at police. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's there's some specific thing that they were trying to charge someone, and mm-hmm. the, the magistrate threw it out and said, actually, that's perfectly normal language in this day and age. Okay, there you go. I think it's a risky line to go down as well. Really, it's kind of handy having people self-identify as Nazis. It's like, put your hand up if you're a Nazi. Oh, well, it's good to know. Now we know who you are. It's kind of, I'd rather know who they are than um, than have it all go underground and be kept secret. And, exactly. And that um, is the whole point because it, at least while they're out, out and that sort of stuff, you can have the special branch photograph them and, you know, you've, mm-hmm. got, a, you've got a record of who they are. Mm. And then after that, you can always they can always be raided by the cops and all mm. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Shailene says that was an accidental love heart. What does that mean? Was that the upside down OK sign, Shailene? I don't know what you're talking about there. I've had kept track. If you're in the chat room, say hello. Don's there. Shay's there. Sticky Bits is there. So wasn't um, wasn't it one of the ACL people who got? Photographed with a bunch of white power guys. No, proud boys. Yeah, that pillow who, guy was with them. Right. And I think they were doing some sort of upside down okay sign. Yeah, yeah, it was something like that. Yeah. So Sticky Bits says there's a human right to be free of the incitement of hate. So oh, there's also human rights about free speech uh, mm-hmm. as well, isn't there? There's the problem with rights at that level that are so broad is that they invariably conflict with each other at some point. So it'll be a great line, that one. And I'm sure that Saudi Arabia are very proud of their laws against people <laughs> who incite hatred of, of Islam. Mm. Mm. So tricky one to legislate on, gestures. Very. Not just speech but gestures really heading into dangerous territory with that one. So, And, you know, very, you know, I, I think also the Weimar Republic historically actually mm. locked up the Nazis, Nazi leaders, for breaching hate speech laws. Mm. It didn't stop them. Mm. It, it's arguable whether it slowed them down at all. Mm. I, I think the, the problem is you're, you're giving this power to people who will misuse it when they get into power and you're not stopping them from getting into power. Mm. And I think at this point in the movement of modern-day Nazism in Australia, I think we're still at the point where we could just take a moment to watch what develops. We don't have to rush into something immediately. Let's just see where this movement goes as well, I think, is something we could do. So, so oh, sticky bits, you're going to have to be more specific if you want us to, to respond because you're speaking in very general terms there of denying what we're saying but not actually providing any detail. So provide some detail and we'll respond. All right, where are we up to? So, so yeah, that's happened in Victoria and the woman behind the anti-trans movements trying to head to New Zealand, see what happens there. There was a, there was a, a coalition politician involved in the movement, Moira Deeming, and... There were moves to have her thrown out of the parliamentary party and I'm not sure where that's got to but not everybody was in agreement on that one. So it's going to be tricky for the Victorian opposition in dealing with that one. So a real right mess for them. So, so yeah, anyway, that was Victoria and really quite shocking really. The, vi- the vision, if you see it, of the people – actually, I think I've got it here in a picture on it. So the vision of the people doing their Nazi salute, pretty full on. 
So there you go. That's democracy at work as well. All right, sticky bits. I've already cited Article 19. What's it say, sticky bits? Article 19. So what I'm saying is that there's, in the human rights legislation, you get conflicts between your right to do something and somebody else's right to do something, and they overlap. That's the problem with human rights in general. So one person's right to practice their religion, e.g. Israel Folau, telling people what he thinks about homosexuals, interferes with somebody else's right not to be have hate, hate speech against them. So that's the problem there. So, And yes, no expert in human rights ever says what you're saying. Yeah. None of them? Yeah, it's a pretty broad statement. All right, that's good. Somebody in the chat room having a go at us and, uh, and having to disagree, which is good. Robo-debt, briefly, gentlemen. <laughs> I'd heard about this averaging and I really didn't quite get what they were, uh, what they were saying with the averaging. And basically it worked like this, where people <laughs> might have... People might have worked for six well, – or been on the, on the unemployment benefits for, say, six months from July to December. Then they get a job in January and work from January through to June. And then what the department was doing was looking at their tax return, seeing that they'd earned, let's say, $30,000 and assumed that they had earned that over the course of the whole 12 months – meaning they'd earned 15000 during that period when they were unemployed. And that's how a lot of this averaging worked, where people had been on unemployment, told the department, I've got a job, and got off unemployment, and then had this averaging provision put on them, pretty clear that that was just a very unfair arrangement. So that's how, that's how, that's how the averaging worked. So... Actually, when I first heard that they were averaging and that sort of stuff, I thought to them, Jesus Christ, they're going to get themselves in a hell of a lot of trouble there because, you know, you look at me, I was unemployed for six months and then I got off unemployment and I went and got a very well-paying job, mm. which would have, had they have actually applied it and that sort of stuff, they would have they would have really fucked me over and they would have said, well, you have to pay back 100% of your doll. In the chat room, Sticky Bit says, do you know Australia is a secular society? Scott Morrison didn't think so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, Sticky Bit, Scott and I did actually stand for the secular party at a Senate election. So we do know a little bit about it, but we wish it was a secular society. It hasn't quite reached it. That's what we're here for. All right, let's talk about AUKUS and more of the fallout from the submarine issue. Scott, even though I know you are bored with the topic of the submarines, <laughs> you know, I've been banging on about it for a long time, of course. Mm. And uh, did, you, did you listen or watch Paul Keating with, at the press club? Did you see it at yeah, all? Yeah, I did see it. I didn't, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I did see right. snippets of it. Okay. And so, I thought he was far too rude to that particular journalist and uh, you know he really he really tore him a new one and i yeah. just thought to myself okay paul you've got to calm down here but, but this was the journalist behind the herald articles mm. that ran for three days mm. beating up a propaganda of of a war against china like a pretty dangerous act but anyway 
there's sort of two parts to this. What did he say about submarines and then what did he say to the journalists? So I'm going to play a little bit of a clip of what he said about submarines first of all, just some of the basic sort of stuff before we get into his mean words to the journalists. So here he is, Paul Keating. So the only way the Chinese could threaten Australia or, att or attack it is by is on land. That is, they bring an armada of troop ships with a massive army to occupy us. This is not possible for the Chinese to do because you would need an armada of troop ships and they'd need to come 13 days of steaming, 8,000 kilometres between Beijing or Shanghai and Brisbane, say, in which case we would just sink them all. <laughs> Let me say this. China has not threatened us and despite five years of this China threat appearing in the Sydney Morning Herald, particularly, you know, written by, you know, provocateurs like Harcher and people, it's all been untrue. So it's been untrue. <laughs> because it's 8,000 tonnes, that's big, they're discoverable, they'll be discoverable from space. And what's more, they are too big for the shallow waters of the Australian coast. A 4,000 tonne boat like the Collins worked perfectly around the Australian coast because it was designed to protect Australia. It wasn't designed to sit off the Chinese coast sinking Chinese submarines, right? So now we've got a big 8,000 tonne clunker. You can't impute threat meaning, meaning invasion with putting a, a tariff on wine. Or maybe you're silly enough to think that. You know, do you think you cyber are silly attack, enough Mr. to think that? Mr Keating, cyber attack. Well, what do you think, the Americans and the Russians are not into cyber attacks? Who, who in the world is not into cyber attacks? Or do you think we are not? You know, just, rem just remember this. The best friend we had in Asia was a, f was a former president of Indonesia, Batu, Yoda Hono, you know? He was the best guy we had barracking for us, you know. Those dopes in ASIS tapped his telephone and that of his wife. Tapped his phone. I mean, this is what states get up to if you let these security agencies, ning-nongs, take control, you know. But you can't impute, as your, as your question imputes, that a, that, that a tax or a tariff on wine or barley is equivalent to, to, to an invasion of the country. China does not threaten Australia, has not threatened Australia, does not intend to threaten Australia. You can have all these commercial rows you like, we can have diplomatic sort of dust. Remember, this all happened after, after Maurice Payne, you know, the great non-minister of our time, went on the Insiders program and said we're going to have weapon inspection, weapons type inspections of, of Wuhan to find out what was the cause of the virus. It was out of that came all of this, you know. So you can't put a question without contexting it, you know. You know I mean, contextualisation may not be your long suit, but that's what you should. Contextualisation may not be your long suit. Was that mean, Scott? Was it? Or did we, that part was fair enough? No, that part was fair enough. Yeah, yeah. It's just the part that was reported was saying that he... he, he basically abused the guy, I thought, anyway. We'll, we'll get on to that, to the yeah. Sydney Morning Herald guy. So, yeah. But anyway, in these... So and I agree, with Ke yeah, I, I agree with Keating. China has not actually directly threatened Australia. Mm. It hasn't. Mm. But they have made some rather provocative noises about Taiwan, mm. and Taiwan is a democracy of 25 million people, which... But, but, but these are all noises that... the what the world community all agrees with. They've said, 
everyone agrees to the one China mm. policy, don't they? Well, yeah, we but I we've agreed to it. America agrees to it. Yeah, everyone know, agrees to it. I honestly believe the Americans and the Australians would be a lot happier if the, if the one China was was actually run out of Taiwan rather than but, Beijing. But, but it can hardly be a it can hardly be a provocative statement when Australia and America and most of the Western world are on the same page <laughs> with the one China policy. Like, it isn't. How can that be provocative to simply state what everyone else agrees? I don't get it. Yeah, but they're talking... They haven't said we're going to charge in next week and take over. No, I know that, but okay. they have that, actually they have actually just... conducted military exercises and all that sort of stuff very close to Taiwan. Mm. And they have threatened the independence of that country. Yeah, I've said to you before that I honestly believe that China should actually accept that they won that civil war and that Taiwan is just a remnant of that, is just a remnant of that civil war. So, you know, they've just got to accept that. Mm. And Taiwan has evolved into a democracy. It wasn't a democracy for a long time. It was a military dictatorship under Chiang Kai-shek, I believe. He was the bloke that set it up and that sort of stuff. So it was a military dictatorship for a long time there. And then after that, once it started to go democratic and that sort of thing, they had a situation that they called them the old timers. These were these old timers that were still representing, they were still representing people in mainland China and that sort of stuff, despite the fact they hadn't been elected for years. And that's why the nationalists had control of the government. But over time, they did actually, they voted themselves out of office. And that's when the, when it became a true democracy. Mm. So that is why I think that, I think that China's actually got to sit down and talk to them more than saber rattling. Because if they talk to them and that sort of stuff, it's going to diffuse the whole situation. Now, one of the things I think that they could actually agree on is that the South China Sea is something that can belong to mainland China and that Taiwan can renounce their claims over the South China Sea. So that is something that they could do. It wouldn't be a hell of a lot, but it would be something that they could do. They, they could renounce their claims over parts of Mongolia and, and areas like that that the yeah, Taiwanese are still claiming to. Uh, yeah, which I, I agree with you there. They mm. they should renounce all those claims because they mm. lost that they lost the civil war. Mm. Mm. You know, the nationalists lost the civil war, so they've got to actually accept their their. What's the word I'm groping for? Their much smaller part of the territory and that sort of stuff. They've mm. got to accept it and they've got to accept it. So if they accepted it, then that would be something that China could then say, okay, these guys are actually starting to make some more sense. Mm. Yeah. But I honestly believe it's time that I honestly believe it would be preferable if China would actually grow up a bit and actually not, not threaten Taiwan. What, anymore. what threat? Okay. Well, they have what, honestly the they have not actually threatened them, but they have they have conducted military exercises very close to Taiwan. How could they not conduct a naval military exercise that's not close to Taiwan? It's impossible. Yeah, but that would How be could they had, not? They, had they have accepted that Taiwan <laughs> was an independent country, then they wouldn't be lobbing shells into their into but, their. But, but you, you can't say the fact that they're doing it off their own coastline is a provocative act because where else are they going to do it? 
Yeah, but they're not they're not actually they're not actually lobbing shells or anything into their own you know, if you actually if you actually looked at the distance and that sort of stuff between the two, then mm. you'd have to divide it between you'd have to say, well, okay, 50% of this belongs to the PRC, 50% of it re- belongs to the ROC. But that would be a two-China policy. Yeah, I know, which is where I'm headed to. And I believe that, I honestly believe that that's where we've got to get to, that we've got to have something like that mm-hmm. because that would be preferable to them just beating their chest and that sort of stuff. Now, I honestly believe it was... There's no the chest age- beating. There is chest beating, Trevor. There is chest beating because they're lobbing shells at them and all that sort of stuff. They haven't lobbed a shell on Taiwan. No, they haven't, but they've lobbed shells in their waters. It's like us lobbing shells into Moreton Bay, almost. Like yeah, it's, it's not that. It's not Moreton Bay. Moreton Bay is Australian territorial waters. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Look, in terms of provocative acts, there's so much greater provocation by, for example, the United States completely encircling China. That's provocation. Like honestly, conducting their own military exercises. But we've been over that before. Just mm. diverting back to Paul Keating, so essentially he was making all the same arguments that I've been making all these years is that it's an inappropriate to have a nuclear submarine. You want something small and nimble that can hide. It's way too expensive. And, uh, oh, and it is what ridiculously the, What the hell? There is no threat from China anyway. It's all just bullshit. And how, how would China invade us? Because they'd have to have this massive armada of troop ships, which is incredibly difficult to do, and we could pop them off easily because we've got... Plenty of notice as they make their way down here. So, so he was really. I could have written his the, the the part that he wrote in his written speech. I could have written that. That was that was yeah, a summary. And I, of, and I agree, of I agree with Keating. Saying. I agree with Keating that you mm. know there is no you know, there is no mm. threat to Australia, and mm. that is why I just thought to myself at the time that mm. it was just a little bit ridiculous that we were considering buying nuclear mm. submarines, and then we went down the road of actually buying them. Mm. And now, you know, $368 billion, mm. that is a ridiculous sum of money. Mm. And, you know, if we went back to the original the original plan for the submarines, it was buy Abbott and that sort of stuff. He said he wanted to buy them from Japan. Mm. Now, how do you have actually spent $12 billion buying 12 submarines from Japan Happy days because we'd have we'd have the we'd have the capacity and that sort of stuff to protect ourselves over here. Mm. We would not get involved in any adventures. Correct in the we South def- China Sea. We would have defensive submarines rather than offensive. Exactly, and that is mm. the whole point. Like you know, it appears that the Yanks looked at looked at us and said, okay, well, we're going to need to, we're going to need to expand that. We're going to need to expand our bases and that sort of stuff. So we're going to need to put them down there and that type of thing so they can go ahead and make a nuisance of themselves. Mm. Mm. One thing that Keating said in his statement, which was news to me that was amazing, was that basically Scott Morrison called them in, him, Penny Wong and Miles, and said, I've got this AUKUS deal, and what do you reckon? And within 24 hours, the Labor Party agreed to it. Mm. Something as massive as AUKUS, within Mm. 24 hours they agreed to it, and Keating was scathing about that, saying, 
what the hell are you doing? Agreeing to something as momentous as that within 24 hours. And he's got a really good point there. So he was quite scathing of Penny Wong and suggesting or saying that she had a policy where she just didn't want any difference between Labor oh, and Liberals when it came to defence because she didn't want any wedge issues. So essentially the entire, you know, Labor program has been to fall in line with the Conservatives on defence issues so that they wouldn't be wedged in an election. Mm. Bugger any principles that you might have about what our policy should be on these sorts of things. It was just let's not create a target, let's not allow ourselves to be wedged and let's just agree to whatever they're doing. What a pathetic, pathetic arrangement to come to and shameful. And obviously Paul Keating knows exactly what's going on in the Labor Party, so there's nothing fanciful about that. He's not making it up. That's what mm. would have transpired. Penny Wong just being a chicken and a coward and willing to just give up the idea of an independent Labor foreign policy just to avoid a fight with the Liberals in an election. Pathetic. And to, and to agree to AUKUS within 24 hours, just an abdication of duty by all concerned. And it's really got me worried about prospects for what Albanese might do. Over the next, he's going to do anything about Julian Assange or other issues like that, so hard to imagine. Well, he made some sort of positive statements and all that sort of stuff pretty shortly after he was elected about Julian Assange. So we'll have to wait and see on that. Yeah. Oh, you know, it may well be it may well be that part of the backroom dealing and that sort of stuff saying, well, you know, you want us to pay three hundred and sixty eight billion dollars for these for these submarines that have a off the shelf price of ten billion dollars a head. Mm. You know. I think you're gonna have to come good with Julian Assange. So yeah, I, I was hoping that's what he would be doing in the background. And mm. I was hoping that when it comes to stage three cut tax cuts, he'd be saying prior to the next election, guess what, we're not going to allow that. Now yeah. I'm having serious doubts about the guy. So, so It wouldn't surprise me that stage three tax cuts could get knocked on the head before the budget because yeah. it's, it's one of those things. Yep. Now let me just get on to the other part of Keating's speech, which was where he was getting into the journalists. So in particular, the guy from the City Morning Herald. So this is the so-called nasty bit with, with what he was up to. So I'll play a bit of this. Matthew Knott from the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age has a question. Hi, Mr Keating. I'll ask two parts if I could. You've been extremely critical of the Albanese government, including ministers Richard Miles and Penny Wong. Are you concerned that your comments today could represent a fundamental rupture with the party? You've already said that the Prime Minister hasn't responded to your request to brief him on this. And secondly, you have a, a tremendous skill for invective and criticism. Could I ask you now to turn some of that to the Chinese Communist Party and its treatment of Uyghurs, for example, its treatment of pro-democracy activists in Hong Kong. Will you be similarly critical of them as you are of people in your own party and journalists? After what you co-wrote with Harcher last week in that shocking presentation in the Herald on Monday, Tuesday, and when you should hang your head in shame, I'm, I'm surprised you even have the gall to stand up in public and ask such a question, frankly. You know, you're... Do the right thing and drum yourself out of Australian journalism, you know. 
I mean, that's the, the most egregious, the worst, the most biased presentation. You pick up four specialists. You could have picked up John McCarthy, a long-term specialist, Alan Gingell. You pick up four China Hawks, the, the biggest of them all, Jen, Jen, Jennings, you know, Davina Lee. These are all China Hawks. You represent them to your community as having an independent view where you know full well that you've, 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 you've selected them to the, do this thing. And here you are asking me about Uyghurs and you're asking me about, uh, if I said to you, and I did say when I saw it last time, here's the Prime Minister over, there's all, everyone over in India, not one question from any one of you about, about Modi shutting in the Muslims in Kashmir, in, in the pro-Hindu policies, nothing. But there is still a question, Mr Keating, about the Chinese treatment of the Uyghurs. Can yeah, well, look, look, the treatment of the Uyghurs, I'm not to defend China about the Uyghurs. I mean, there's disputes about what the nature of the, of, of, the, of the Chinese affront to the Uyghurs are. There's a dispute about that. But one thing we can't be sure of, what if the Chinese said, but look, what about deaths in custody of Aboriginal people in your, in your prison system? You know, wouldn't that be a valid point for them? Wouldn't it be a valid point? In other words... Great power diplomacy is, cannot be about reaching down into the low social entrails of these states any more than they can with us, you know. But the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, frankly, has, has lost... It's, 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 it's a newspaper without integrity. And, and, uh, and, and the age follows it in, poor little, like a little pup running behind, you know. I mean, if I were you, mate, I'd hide my face and never appear again. On, on the For the record, Mr Keating, we're, we're very proud of our journalism and you know, we think that's made an important contribution yeah. to well, the national debate. But can I just clarify, do you think that it really is in dispute about what China has been doing in Xinjiang? It's been uh, very well chronicled by the United Nations, right. which issued a detailed report right. last well, let year. Me, let, well, let me ask you, do you, what do you believe Modi and his Hindu party is doing to, to the Muslims in Kashmir? Have you got a view on that? a question about China back to one because about India. You're the, because you're not honest enough to recognise that the guy you support, Modi, has the same sort of problems as, as the Chinese have. You know? We've reported uh, on problems uh, in, yeah, in yeah, India yeah. as well, but we're talking no, about you China don't. No, right you now. no, you don't. You're all a soft touch on India. That's the truth. Was that so rough? Really? He basically said the three pages, the three days of articles by you guys was terrible piece of journalism that was irresponsible and dangerous and it was yeah it was now there's no argument there so but keating still has not answered the question about the treatment of the uyghurs and I, yes the journalist I, never I, asked the question I, of the of the modi regime and that I, sort of stuff over I, their treatment of the muslims in Kashmir. okay separate issue though the uyghurs are a separate issue but but on the on the ah, claim but, of abuse, but just let's just deal with the abuse claim. Well, he was very Keating, rude. <laughs> well, what does somebody deserve respect who utilizes a major newspaper outlet and runs a campaign that's against Australia's interest and is incredibly dangerous? Well, that's got to be called out, hasn't it? Like, and he basically uh, called him out and said, you should hang your head in shame calling, for printing that rubbish. He said, he said that, you know, you, you, you ought to hang your head in shame, which is what? just wrong with that? a like, little bit over the top. Is it? Is it yeah, over it the top? it was just a little bit over the top. Well, 
if 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 somebody is drumming the you know beating the drum of war unnecessarily and inciting Australia to enter a war mm. by by outright propaganda an incredibly biased report that had nothing from the other sort of argument isn't isn't that about as bad as it gets what what I mean, the guy could zig hail down the main street twenty four seven to be nowhere near as bad as 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 what he's doing with his newspaper. Like that's one of the worst things an Australian could do would be to try and get us into an unnecessary war and to try and beat up an unnecessary war. I, th- I think mm. Keating went light on him. I, to me, it seemed an incredibly it, d- it didn't seem over the top at all to be. To be putting it on somebody like that and saying you what you've done is shameful. I'd like to take that way and think about that. Okay. Might have convinced you a little bit. You've made me question myself. Hmm. I yeah. Dunno, it could be my old Liberal Party roots and that sort of stuff coming out of me and that sort of thing hmm. thinking if Keating says something, it's obviously wrong. Hmm. But Keating hasn't said too much wrong there. I just mm. think that he was just a little bit too rude to... I just think so, he was just a little bit too rude, that's all. And with the other journalists, what I saw when I watched it, and I've watched it sort of probably twice now because I was trying to pull out clips and things, was really often journalists would frame, try and frame a situation with a question. It wasn't necessarily genuinely what do you think because some of the questions, like there was one journalist who asked a question about how this affected our relationship with Indonesia. And Keating was absolutely straight up and down and and dealt with the issue of what that meant with Indonesia because it was a good question. Like it was a question that was relevant and Keating really treated it with a straight bat and I don't know if that's the right expression, but basically paid respect to the question, answered it and didn't abuse the journalist. And there was another question of a similar ilk where... Basically, Keating just dealt with the question. But others would enter it by, by framing and saying, well, you know, in the light of China's provocations, blah, 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 here's my question. And he would say, stop right there. What do you mean provocation? Why are you using that word? So are you so naive as to think that, that you know, wine tariffs are, are an attack? So to me it was plain speaking and it was pulling people up and genuinely listening to what they were saying and responding to it. So whereas politicians now basically say whatever they want to and totally ignore the question, like that's what we get most of the time now is politicians, doesn't matter what the question was, they will head off with a spiel of whatever they wanted to talk about. He at least had the courtesy to say, I've listened to what you've said and I truly understand the way that you framed it and I'm going to deal with the way you framed it and the question. And uh, I thought it was very well done. So, look, Keating made a heap of mistakes in government, like way too many. But so he wasn't right on everything by any means, but he's right on this one. So, yeah. Well, I did have to agree with Keating when he said that we had to find our security within Asia, not from mm. Asia. Mm. I think he was right there. Mm. You know, it's one of those things. Mm. So, so anyway, and it was interesting that in the aftermath of the Keating interview, people were uh, talking more about the style rather than the substance. And 
and couldn't really engage properly. So it was all an interesting exercise. So, mm. right, let's just divert back. Sticky bits, mate, or whoever you are, you, if you're rattling off 50 messages. There's no way we're going to be able to deal with all of them. We can't interrupt every train of thought to deal with everything that you want to say. So, But let's just backtrack a little bit then for Article 19, Human Rights Act, which now let me just go back to the chat and uh, what do we say here? Article 19, hate speech explained, a toolkit. Article 19. Article 19 says... Everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. This right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive and impart information and ideas through any media and regardless of frontiers. Doesn't really say much about hate speech in there. It seems to be on the side of saying, say whatever you like. It doesn't really provide many caveats. You've got the right to express yourself, the freedom to hold opinions to seek, receive and impart information and ideas through any media. So I just return to the Israel Folau situation where he would say under Article 18, everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion. This right includes freedom to change his religional belief and freedom either alone or in community with others and in public or private to manifest his religion or belief. So between the two, that's what happens when you have general rights. So, so yeah, that's... Back to the uh, the problem of competing human rights. Right, what are we up to next? I've found it. I follow Hellsong Survivors on Facebook. And I have to say, it's a content page. It's mostly memes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, I was getting fairly turned off by them actually recently because they seem to be very homophobic. So the Hillsong Survivor Group. Yeah. Right. So they were still Christian, just not Hillsong anymore. Oh, but I don't know. I mean, they seem to be atheist. So right. lots of atheist memes. Right. But particularly pointed at the evangel- evangelical church. Mm-hmm. But but lots of jokes about how various people are gay and how they're all having gay sex in the prayer room and lots of things like that, which just seem to be unwarranted. Joe, if you're going to hang around Hillsong chat rooms, even ex-Hillsong <laughs> chat rooms. Anyway. Don't, don't they, hang around there hoping for great they, things. They, they put five posts up about how Keating was a dog and how dare he talk about anyone like that. Oh. And I said, so we're going to have posts about this but not about the fact that they've jumped straight on board an LMP thing and they're going to spend however many billion dollars on this. And they said, mm. well, yeah, of course that's bad. Okay, but where are the memes? Where are the posts? You know, mm. here you are bagging Keating, but you've said nothing about the submarines. Yeah. So just back to the Uyghurs, what yes. Keating said was, look, I don't know about the Uyghurs, uh-huh. essentially, and it's disputed as to what is going on with the Uyghurs in China. But he said, essentially, you don't ask these questions about India why, why do we have to deal with them with China if you're not prepared to ask them about India? And fair point. Like, fair point. It, it is in dispute what's going on with the Uyghurs. Who knows? Who, honestly, who knows where the propaganda from either side s- starts and finishes with that one? 
particularly when one of the guys behind it was some crazy evangelical guy was the main source of a lot of the stuff going on there. So I really honestly don't know what's going on with the Uyghurs and it is genuinely disputed. And that's all Keating said was it's in dispute. He didn't say the Chinese were innocent. He said he's not there to defend them. But he's just saying, really, why are you raising this if you're not prepared parties that we do India? It's, it's hypocritical. It's a double standard. And they could just as easily turn around and talk about our treatment of Indigenous people in prison and deaths in custody. Et well, I don't know that they so, could. No, but that's but what he said. That's a furphy. Um, yes. That's what he but, said. Um, and we are yeah. selling uranium to India. We're selling iron ore to China, well, presumably to make the bombs that they're going to drop on us. Whatever happened to the, you know, what's the pig iron? Pig iron Bob. Pig yeah. iron Bob. Right. Because he was selling pig iron to Japan, yeah. which was turned into steel and that sort of stuff, which was used to make the ships and that sort of stuff that sailed south. So prior to the Second World War, the wharfies mm. said, looks like we're heading to war with these Japanese. What are we doing selling them pig iron? Mm-hmm. It's going to end up as artillery or some weapon to be used against our boys mm. and had to stop it. If these people were genuine about fears about China wanting to invade us, what are we doing selling the iron ore? Doesn't make sense. <sighs> okay, so that's Paul Keating. That was good. What else we got here? An easy has said it's a different world now to what Paul Keating was dealing with. And I had an article by a guy called Michael Pascoe basically talking about how people were complaining about what Keating said or how he said it, but they couldn't really complain about what he said. And we hadn't really had a debate. And so that was a good article there. Right. What we're nearly done with subs, and I promised you this night, Scott. Mm. I'll make this promise now. I will not mention submarines again <laughs> next week. Okay, this is the last little bit here, here and now. Okay, fair enough. Are we going to talk about the Hillsong papers and that sort of stuff that the independent Tasmanian Wilkie? Wilkie, that's him. We that will. Is- as soon as I finish with my last bit on submarines. Excellent. <laughs> Which is just what did the what did what did people think? What's what's public opinion with this stuff? So Australia's need for nuclear powered submarines. So Essential Poll asked people in Australia and said these submarines, it's going to cost up to $368 billion. Which of the following is closest to your view on Australia's need for nuclear-powered submarines? And 26% said, we need nuclear submarines and it's worth paying that amount. 27% said, we need nuclear-powered submarines, but it's not worth that much. 28% said, we don't need nuclear-powered submarines, and 19% said they were unsure. So only 26% of the Australian population, according to this survey, thinks that we need the submarines and it's worth paying that much for them. And tell me, do they all read the Australian? Those 26%? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a problem for Labor down the track. Great for the Greens, would have thought. So how does this pan out in terms of breakdown of male and female 
So that one about people who who like the idea, we need the submarines and they're willing to pay the price, 35% of males think that, but only 17% of females. So that's a big difference. 35% male, 17% female. Lots of males who like a shiny, expensive submarine to shoot things and only 17% of women. So mm. the other statistics there were uh, not that interesting. And I'll just go for one more here on submarines. Is this one here by age, 18 to 34 age group, only 20%. I think we need them at that price. But in the older age group, 55 plus, it's 32%. And then just one more on submarines on statistics would be voting patterns. So 41% of coalition voters would say Australia needs those submarines and it's worth paying them, only 26% labour. So essentially if you're old, if you're male, if you are a coalition voter, that's the demographic that wants a submarine, a nuclear submarine at that price anyway. So I thought the gender one was a really striking one. So... Any of that surprise you guys? No, none of that surprises me. Mm. So, all right. I think um, we're just looking at the LMP demographic, aren't we? Yeah. So, Scott, Silicon but Valley Bank collapsed. Just one oh. thing before we mm. move on. Yep. The Stage 3 tax cuts are projected to cost $245 billion over the next 10 years. So that sorry. goes. So, say that again, Scott. Sorry. That's going to cost two hundred and forty-five billion dollars over the next ten years. That's the stage three tax cuts. Mm. Now, if they knock them on the head, they've gone a very long way to covering the whole cost of the three hundred and sixty-eight billion dollars. Mm. Now, you know, I think that there's a hell of a stronger argument to knock that on the head because you've got to sit up and down. You're going to say, which do you want? Do you want these tax cuts or do you want these nuclear subs? You would think at the next election that's what they would do mm. and say because we need these subs and because it's more expensive than we thought, that's our reason for deciding to cancel the stage three tax cuts. You would think so. Mm. But I don't know. I just – I'm lost um, a lot of faith <laughs> in this Labor government. Yeah, which is no doubt that you have lost a hell of a lot of faith, which is fine, mm. but it's just... Uh, I still think they'll do it, but I'm not so sure as I was. Yeah. I was really confident previously that they would just do it bef because they don't come into effect until another three years or something anyway. No, they're starting to implement them before mm. the next election. Mm. So that is the whole bloody problem that they've got is that, you know, Albanese was able to implement the changes to superannuation because he says if you don't like it, don't vote for us and kick us out, mm. which is fine. But he hasn't got the same sort of – he can't say the same thing about the Stage 3 tax cuts mm. because they're, the, implement, the implementation policy and the implementation of the policy and all that sort of stuff has already been voted on, that sort of thing that's going to start before the next election. Mm. So that is a – that's a bit of a bugger for him when he said that he was he was committed to the tax cuts, mm. which was just a little bit foolish, I would have thought. Mm. 
John in the chat room made a good point. Sticky bits, you're welcome to reach out via email. Go to the website, ironfistvelvetglove.com.au, send me an email and we can discuss to your heart's content things that you're talking about here. But, I mean, I didn't cherry pick. I did actually put the whole of Article 19 on the screen, read it out, so read the whole thing <laughs> and how I could have been accused of cherry picking it. That was it, the whole thing. All right. Yeah, we're just going to have to put you on quiet for a while, Sticky Bits. Scott. Mm. Silicon Bank. Yeah, it went belly America. up. Mm. So this was a bank, dear listener, based in Silicon Valley and had an, old, an old-fashioned bank run essentially occurred. It wasn't your typical bank. This was a bank that had a lot of wealthy people with large amounts of money in there. So... This was a lot of people connected with the PayPal mafia, Teal and... Watson was in PayPal, wasn't he? Oh, uh, Musk. Elon Musk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All that crowd had a lot of money in, in that bank. So essentially it wasn't... When you're dealing in those sorts of numbers with those sorts of people, when somebody like that does a quick run around to 20 of his closest mates and says, I think the bank's in trouble, let's get our money out, or I've got my money out, I think you should too, then it is. if you're ever going to construct a run on a bank, then that was the bank to do it on, where you could quickly get people on board. So, and they, they had issues where they had uh, had these bonds, which they owned, which were government-issued treasury bonds. And because interest rates have increased, the value of the bonds, which were at low interest rates, were decreasing. And they don't have to show that on their books until they actually sell them. So even though the market value of these bonds had decreased, they didn't have to show them. So their books kind of look better than what they were. Anyway, we're really entering a period, dear listener, where we've had record interest rates since the global financial crisis. And coming out of that, where we go back to more normal rates of interest, is not going to be necessarily that easy. And there's going to be people stuck with low interest treasury bonds, which are then devalued. And it's just not going to be the easiest thing to work back into a normal interest rate situation. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with. Treasury bonds, though, usually worth more because they're government backed. They're a conservative investment yes. with a guaranteed rate of return. Like the bond, you know, says it's a. 3% bond or whatever. But the problem mm -hmm. is when people, when the interest rates go up to 5 or 6%, yeah. then the value of that bond is now decreased because people go, oh, what do I want a 3% one for? I could have a 6%. So what, what would you... that bond be worth if it was paying 6%? And so, yeah, that's where it gets into trouble with the uh, – they do drop in market price mm -hmm. when the interest rate increases. Yeah. Which is essentially what you're talking about. There is is the is the secondhand value of those bonds, because yeah. they were, you know, if they were if you were just if you were just valuing at the at the list price and that sort of stuff, you just you wouldn't move it, which right. is where the bank got into trouble because it wasn't actually reducing the value of the of them on their books. Mm. And so, and they're a long-term thing, so mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see what happens with, with these guys. So, all right, The Voice. Mm. Mm. Support to The Voice has dropped significantly. Okay. 
So, a support for The Voice. Overall, back in February 23, only a month ago, 65% in favour, 35% against. In favour has now dropped 6% to 59. That's a big, that's a big drop. 59, from 65 to 59%. Just breaking that up into different demographic segments. So, those in favour, males, 56%. Females, 63%. Also, age group. If you're young, 18 to 34, 79% in favour of the voice. If you're old, 55 or older, only 40% in favour of the voice. I'm starting to see a similar demographic, Scott, to uh, submarines here. <laughs> Interesting here. It's, it's going to line up pretty much the same way. By state, in favour of the voice, New South Wales, 61%. Victoria, 67%. Queensland, 49%. South Australia, 62%. Western Australia, 55%. So, Scott, for a referendum to get up, what, what do we need? You need a majority of states with... You need a majority of the population saying yes and you need a majority of states saying yes. Mm. So that would look... If you were to look at that, then Queensland would be voting no. WA, yeah, then you'd probably... It depends on no. what Tasmania is. Hmm. I wonder why Tasmania didn't get on there. Don't on know. That chart. Yeah, maybe they didn't have enough respondents for a for a good sample size. Because mm. Tasmania doesn't count. Yeah. No, so they've got half a million people down there. It's bloody ridiculous that they're their own state. Anyway, Queensland on that chart, the only state at this stage. Okay, this is the interesting one for the the hard yes and the hard no, mm. and. And, guys, do you remember last time we talked about this, in the Greens, there was – actually, I've got it on the next slide. I'll go forward one. The slide at the moment is the February slide. And people who voted Greens but were a hard no was 3%. And at the time, Jay, you were pointing out that was probably me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Guess what? 13%. It's jumped. Yeah. From 3% to 13% Greens voters who are a hard no. That was a really interesting statistic. But a hard yes and a hard no is, oh, I suppose it's little chance. I thought it was zero chance that their mind would change because I'm going to say these people have changed their minds. Yeah. But the thought there is that maybe with Lydia Thorpe, and what she was saying, where she was kind of saying just like against the voice because she's thinking it's ceding sovereignty, for example. So maybe more people in the Greens along the Lydia Thorpe line where they're saying no because it doesn't go far enough or because it potentially cedes sovereignty rather than the other reason why people say no? What do you reckon? What do you think is most likely happening there, Scott? Well, I think it's probably, you think you've probably hit the nail on the head there. It looks like the it looks like the green voters and that sort of stuff that they were asking, were being asked from the hard left faction of the Greens. Yeah. And they are very much on Lydia Thorpe's side. 
Mm. Wanting a treaty first, for example, or, yeah. or uh, not because they don't ultimately want this this sort of voice, but they want other things first, or they want it increased even more. So you wouldn't have picked that a month ago, Joe, when I was in the three percent. If I'd have said to you then, you know what, like within four weeks, that three percent is going to be thirteen percent, you would have. Yeah, I asked mean, what I was it, smoking. It seems to be if it is that then that survey really doesn't it, it shows what people intend to vote but not why they intend to vote it yes and therefore can be misrepresented yes as yeah. being a people aren't in favor of the voice because they're racists yep yep I, and i'm sure it will be used to bandy about look at what a country of racists we are mm mm so, so, yeah, so that's interesting. The movement there is interesting. We're still a way off from any referendum. Why has it, it moved so much? I, I don't know. I th- See, look, you look at the Labor Party vote, you've only got 20, you've only got 50, you've only got 77% of that being yes. Now right. it's 50% being the hard yes and 27% being the soft yes. Now, what was that originally? I don't know. I'd, I'd have to go back through it all, but mm. yeah. Overall, this is one of those things. I would, I would just be very interested to see. I would be interested to know why it's moving in that direction. Mm. It's mm. just well, we haven't really started the campaign or anything like that, so there's nothing that you can actually say. Oh, look at this. Mm. Anyway, it's it's going to get ugly. Oh, it's going to get extraordinarily <laughs> ugly. It's not. A, it's not going to be at all pretty, mm. Mm. you know. And it's one of those things. Like, yeah, I won't say it, but you know, up here in Rocky and that sort of stuff, you do see a hell of a lot more Indigenous people out on the streets up here than what I just saw in Mackay. Mm. And unfortunately, you do tend to see. The not so nice, right, of them, which yep. isn't pleasant. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things, and I just think to myself, <laughs> if a voice is actually going to stop this sort of nonsense, yeah, let's have it. But I just mm. don't think that it will. And of course, Queensland has a, a large regional population yeah, compared do. to other states. Yeah, so, yeah but surely mm. so does the territory. We didn't have the territory result. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. But so, so does WA? No, not nearly no? as much regional okay. as, you know, a lot of WA people are really stacked in around Perth and yeah, okay. that corner of, of So, uh, so it's Australia. Perth and the mines and that's it? Yeah. Australia's got, Queensland's got a lot more higher sort of regional population than any other state. Mm. Yeah. In the chat room, Landon says, the voice is an issue that people will care about if they are feeling good and secure about their own lives, cost of living, etc. are bigger issues for the average Joe now. So, yes. But does that mean they'd vote no just because they're not feeling secure or they're just not paying attention? Hmm. Yeah. True. Let's see where it all ends up. When's the timeline for this? Have we been given one? It's sometime later this year. They're talking about October, I would have thought. Yeah. They're currently deciding on in the Labor Party as, as to how to organise the show and how much 
money if they need to give to the different arguments and mm. stuff like that. So mm. we can't it's, fund the racists. <laughs> see, that is the whole bloody point about this: is if you mm. can, you know, I can just see it coming that you're going to have you're going to have people on the yes side that are actually saying, unless you vote for this, you're obviously a racist. And it's just going to, the whole thing's going to fall down exactly the way Hillary Clinton did when she said, mm. you know. Same could, as Brexit. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and I wish I knew that, got that name of that bloke that said that, you know, we've just got to, we just got to look at what we did wrong here and that sort of stuff and and thankfully we'd moved on and then we had Hillary Clinton saying oh i could put half of trump supporters into a basket of deplorables you know and that was mm-hmm. when, that was when she she lost the election mm-hmm. you know it's one of those things um, mm. john John in the chat room says i think you guys need to review the comments a bit more john what we're going to do at the end of this one actually is we're going to scroll through the the chat at the end and uh, which might take a little while, but I'll do it at the end because it might get edited out because of this so much delay. But before we just onto the final segment that I want to do. So my son was helping me shipping some furniture down the coast the other day. So we were in a truck together for an hour and a half each way. And most of our discussion on the way down was on whether I I'm, I'm maintain that the Reserve Bank should not be independent anymore. It should be a proper function of government and that we're crazy for delegating this. And he was arguing the opposite. He thought it was still a good idea to have it as an independent operation. Basically, I agree with you, son. Basically <laughs> because he felt that our democracy is so terrible and works so badly that it was better having a non-democratic controlled you know reserve bank. Scott would have just... Scott Morrison would have just made himself head of the Reserve Bank as well. <laughs> he would have as well <laughs> if he'd have been able to and wouldn't have told anybody. To exactly. Yeah. But anyway, and then part of our discussion then as well was what would you do if you were suddenly installed as a benevolent dictator and so you could pass whatever laws you wanted to in Australia as some sort of benevolent dictator and uh, it was a good sort of thought experiment to do. And I thought I'd quickly run through some ideas with you guys and see what you had in your mind as a benevolent dictator. But, you know, as I was thinking about it, probably, you know, I'm thinking you could make all these changes, but then eventually you're going to die. And if you can't install your son as (laughs) as the next benevolent dictator, then everything that you've possibly tried to do could just be unwound very easily. By the next I, dictator. I, I don't know. I think there are some social institutions that mm. were you to dismantle them, mm. it would be very difficult to get the support to recreate yes. them. Yes. But I was probably going to, yes, you're right. If you destroy something, yes. that's probably a long-lasting reform. Yes. Then if you create something, that could easily be torn down. So, for example, if you wanted to get rid of Medicare... Mm-hmm. And getting rid of it, easy, hard to reintroduce. Yeah, yeah, I, but I, I think care is one of those that would have the political support mm. that people would say, I want that back. But hang on, yeah, yes. So anyway, part of my thought process was that, you know, as a, as a benevolent dictator mm-hmm. who really wants his reforms to be long-lasting, even mm-hmm. beyond my lifespan, because, hey, that's no fun just to get everything you want in life. You want it to be on everybody else forever as well. 
what I, what I was thinking was that I'd want to somehow control the education curriculum to inst- install media literacy, critical thinking, citizenship, history and religious education in some sort of mandatory subjects that every kid did. So just people understand what's going on in the world and are basically enabled to figure it out as they go along and how to look at things, how to research, how to think, how to think critically. And that would probably be the most important reform I think I would want to do beyond the other things we'll get into. But number one was just be trying to undergo some mass education project where people really understood a lot of these issues. So when you moved on, they would be better positioned to decide whether to keep them or throw them away or get carried yeah, on. I mean, if, if you talk formal debate, the ability to particularly, I mean, at my school, the teacher very much would throw us in the opposing camp to our personal beliefs yep. to force you to think through the issue and to, uh, to, to steel man your opponent's arguments. Yes, by, by you know, deliberately picking you and putting you in you know, the opposing camp to, to your personal beliefs, mm. that, that would force you to investigate the best arguments on the opposing side yep. and challenge you, the, your, your, your own dogmas, yep. which I think is good. And somebody's mentioned science literacy. You know, growing up, I, even as a come finishing school and having done physics at A-level, I, I still thought that science was a body of knowledge. Mm. I didn't understand that it was a process. Mm. And and that, to me, I think is the biggest thing I think that schools are failing at, is Mm. to say science is not this this single thing. It it is a way of thinking. It's it's a way of challenging beliefs Mm. and, and seeing through our own personal dogmas to arrive at an answer that we can all agree on. Mm. And, like, everyone would have to learn some basic statistics, which I think the COVID-19 situation really demonstrated when I was having arguments with Woz and with Paul about these various studies and what they were saying about lockdowns and the effectiveness and Mm -hmm. vaccines and the effectiveness. and, And, you know, people would point to studies of... 50 people. <laughs> it's like, that's not, a, yeah. that's not a proper study. That number is insignificant. The margin of error on that is way too high, you know. Yeah, just uh, some basic statistical knowledge so that people don't get conned but, by these reports as well. Are you, are you across the whole mask report that came out a couple of weeks ago? The what report? Mask wearing report. No. So Cochrane, who are... A, they, they produce meta-analyses of scientific reports. So they'll go and pull the best scientific papers on a medical study, on a medical yep. issue, and collate the results and then do... So you can take a whole bunch of 50 people studies, which are small, and group them together assuming that they have similar trial outcomes mm-hmm. and effectively make them into one single big study. Okay. And there was one that was done which effectively said... There is no evidence for or against wearing masks in public. 
Right. And that was touted by the anti-vaxxers as, hey, masks don't work. Mm -hmm. And realistically, the report said, look, we don't have good evidence either way. Mm. And that's that's what the report said, but that's not what was read. Mm. And the science-based medicine people have said, this is the problem. We take evidence and we take... Uh, and it's the same with homeopathy and things like that. We take a bunch of studies and look at them in aggregate. And, and the problem is the underlying science just doesn't exist. Mm. This idea of homeopathy falls at its first hurdle when you look at the science. And the same with mask wearing. The physics says if you have water droplets which contain the virus, which is what most of your breath out is, is water mm. droplets, a mask in front of your face is going to catch the majority of those water droplets and is going to reduce the number of virus particles in the air. Mm. So effectively performing these studies is irrelevant because yes. we know the underlying science. Yes, yes. Yep. And this is the problem is the misuse of studies to prove a point. Mm. Now, I remember I did that one where uh, Rowan Dean did that thing on hydro... What was that? Hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine, oh, yeah. Yes. And he referred to the study of studies and, uh, yeah, you know, delved into them and some of these studies were, even as a layman, I could look at it and go, this is just a rubbish study. But So, yeah, sort of... And, educating people about that sort of stuff i think yeah i mean one be... of the studies was the same number the same people had been repeated multiple times to up the numbers so right. they'd got 50 people and then repeated it six times to get 300 people mm. and some people had died before the study had even started mm. so they were obviously fudging the numbers there was a whole load eventually the paper got pulled Mm. But that, that, because it was such a large study, that skewed the output of the meta-analysis. Yeah. Even if yep. the rest had been perfect, that one study was so big in terms of number of people mm. that it just skewed the output. Yep, yep. Things like history, people need some basic, you needed some basic Chinese history to understand the relationship between China and Taiwan and to understand... China's reaction to Australia proposing to have weapons inspectors come in and check out their wet markets. You know, if you weren't aware of the 100 years of humiliation, you don't grasp the significance of that insult to the Chinese. Yeah, so a whole, I think that's a critical thing. I think that would be, if I could control the education curriculum and, and do it long enough to get people thinking in a certain way, then that would be... Possibly my number one aim as a benevolent di dictator. Uh, other ones I have, war powers. So at the moment, some dickhead like Scott Morrison with Stuart Robert and a handful of other mates can just decide if he was prime minister, well, we're off to war. It's just the prime minister and a group of close friends just doing a captain's pick and... There's just no reason why it's not a joint sitting of Parliament for the war powers. So, so that would be another one. Wealth tax, I reckon I'd introduce. Central bank, not independent. Private banks, get rid of them. And nationalise power generation and distribution. And, of course, no funding for private schools or private hospitals. They were uh, the ones uh, and at the top. Nationalise private schools and uh, also I'm telecommunications infrastructure, road mm. infrastructure... 
I wouldn't fund the private schools so they would quickly fall over and I would just pick them up for nothing. So, <laughs> Well, yeah. That's how I would see that playing out. It, it, what about the, you, Scott, benevolent dictator? Scott Clark, what would you be <laughs> putting forward? You're going to make me sound like an extreme right winger here, but I would actually, I would actually reintroduce conscription, but I would make it illegal to have conscripts serve abroad. I think that conscripts should only be serving in Australia. Conscription, mm-hmm. army training. Yes. How to shoot a gun. Yes. What what other skills are you seeing as necessary uh, in this conscription? It's, it's just a it's just a thought that I've always had that I just think to myself it's it wouldn't hurt if you had a trained body of people that could be called up if you needed them. So that is why I think to myself that it's not a bad idea that you have a trained body of people that you only have to do 12 months full-time and then after that you go into the reserves and you stay in the reserves probably for a couple of years compulsorily and then after that you can just decide whether you're going to remain in the reserves for good or not. So kind of like Israel. Yeah, I suppose Mandatory military service in Israel, yeah? Yeah. You know, it's wow, one of those Scott. things. It's, wow. Well, okay. Would, would it be across genders? Yes, it would be. And that is exactly what I was about to say. I think it should be both men and women should be called up. It's one of those things. I just honestly believe that it's something that it would be better if you call up both men and women and that type of thing. And if you do have conscience ob- objectors, then you would also have, you'd then have you'd have them go and do something that would be different. You'd have them, you might have to do that. You might have to do it for five years, but you'd have them doing something different. Well, how about a Peace Corps? Well, you could do that, yeah. You don't see any danger in having people able to indoctrinate young minds for 12 months and tell them about the evil Chinese <laughs> and how they need to be able to point this gun correctly and take that hill and... Well, I think that you've got to look at. I think you've got to look at some of the countries around the world that still have conscription in their countries, which is the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. Okay, do they? Yeah, they do. Switzerland, I think, as well. Well, Switzerland's got compulsory military service, right? And Sweden's only just got rid of theirs, right? It's just one of those things. I just think to myself that if you look at these bastions of Western democracy. Mm-hmm. then they have a compulsory military service, which is part of it. So I don't mm-hmm. have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. In the chat you are, room. You were asking about, you were asking about military, you, you were asking about being a benevolent dictator, and that's something I would do. The yeah. other thing I'd do is I'd also abolish the state governments. But anyway. <laughs> that's a good one, actually. I'll come back to that. In the chat room, if you were a benevolent dictator and you had the chance to pass laws, then what would you do? Tell us in the chat room. So, Scott, I, like, I forgot about that one. States. Mm. Irrelevant, really, aren't they? Oh, they are. Mm. It is absolutely crazy that, you know, you've got Tasmania with a population of half a million people that's got 12 senators. Mm. You've got a population of New South Wales being, what, five, six million? They've got 12 Mm. senators. Yep. You know? Yep. And just, you know, the different education departments, for example. Yeah. Like, why? Some Mm. central education... of course, because of my plans with education, I'd need it centralised. So, yeah. Really, local government, say, needs to be of a good size 
So, like, Brisbane City Council is a good size mm. for being big enough to get stuff done. One of the crazy things in Sydney is they have all these tiny little, little local councils. councils that are way too small. So get rid of the state governments and put in – and in some of oh, the local governments, make them a bit bigger. Do you not remember when they amalgamated mm. all the state gov- the, the local councils here? No. As soon as the Liberals got back in – Noosa, Livingston, and a couple of the others de-amalgamated as soon as they could. I think yeah. that was pure politics. Yeah. But remember, there could be tears, but I'm a benevolent dictator, so well, it just happens. That, yeah. So that's, we're not talking about realistic I'm, I'm, things I'm here. I'm thinking we ought to have a good review into all the land that has been given to the churches over the years, particularly in CBDs. It was handed to the churches because they were deemed as a force for good in society. I think they've proved that they aren't. I yeah. think we should take that land back. There we go. Yep. It's, it's prime land in CBD. We can use that money to recompense the victims of the churches. Mm. I, I think we need a good review on taxation. Mm. In fact, there's these Hillsong papers, there's been some questions around transparency. Mm. I think we could, and, and this is the sort of thing I'm talking about, the, the soft theocracy that gets away with it because of historical rights. And I think if that soft theocracy was demolished, it would be very difficult for them to regain it because right. that would be exposed to the scrutiny of public debate. Yes. I, I think whilst it's the status quo, the public don't think about it. But if it was introduced, and, and yeah, it doesn't matter with the 10% of squealers, it would be very difficult to get it through Parliament because true. most people would say, no, I'm again that. Yep, true. Yep. So, Scott, as a benevolent dictator, anything else that you'd be up for? I think the whole review of taxation would be very good. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, I I think it is ridiculous. Like, you know, those those Hillsong papers were absolutely outrageous, you know. And I think that with that, you know, I think there's a very strong argument for the government to actually say, nah, enough's enough, Mm. you know, because, and particularly with Hillsong, because it was, it was talking, there were in the papers, they were talking about the amount of money that was generated from commercial activities, which is their music and that type of thing. And that is no longer, I don't think that is, that is definitely no longer acceptable to have that as a tax-free income mm-hmm. for a church. Yep. They're, they're operating as businesses and, and, exactly. and, their, and their so-called charity work, they should be proving um, mm. rather I, than I, just I, being assumed. I, I think we split out the charities from the churches mm. and say the churches are a not-for-profit and they can run as a not-for-profit and if they turn a profit, we tax them as a business. Yes. And the charities run as independent charities that are nothing to do with the churches. Yes. Yep. Yep. All right. And if they want to keep their tax-exempt status, they've got to actually, they've got to comply with the overwhelming desires of community, which is that, you know, that gay people are fine, that trans people are fine and that sort of thing. I think that they've actually got to start living up to that. Mm. Yeah, and just scrolling back through some of the chat stuff, John said in our previous conversation about the subs, don't be worried, Trevor, US Congress will never approve the sub sale. Well, they're going to give us some 
secondhand clunkers that they don't want anymore. That's what we're going to get. So yeah. they probably will give us those. They'll, they'll be very the... happy rather than having to decommission, they flog them off to us. Yeah. Or, or even they'll worse. Have to put in, they'll have to put in a new reactor, won't they? Because these reactors are sealed and that type of thing, so they're not. So I, I they, thought we were actually buying British subs. We are buying British subs as part of the second phase of it, but the first oh, okay. phase is we're going to buy three of the... Virginia class? Virginia class, yes. Mm. The, the Virginia class submarines that are manufactured in the United States. That are superfluous now, that they don't need. Mm. Exactly. So we're looking at purchasing three of them, but at the same time we've got to we've got to shell out money for the US to go and build a third manufacturing line and that sort of stuff so they can build more subs submarines. Mm. So, you know, it's it's looking more and more like Keating was right that we are the mugs that are paying for it, mm. you know. We are indeed. Mm. All right. John, I flicked back through the messages. A lot of it was sticky bits, complaining about wanting me to look at Article 19 and then when I eventually <laughs> did... Not been happy. <laughs> so uh, there was a question we, about he sent you an email on some interview. I don't know. I'll come back to John separately about that another time. So okay. we were a little bit distracted, dear listener, at the beginning of this because there was so many from Sticky Bits that that we we're just sort of a bit. I was a bit distracted anyway. So here we go. Right. Mark Kenny interview. Mark Kenny interview. I uh, to be honest, John, if you send me video stuff, I often just don't have the time. Like if it's an article or something, I can quickly skim through and see if I like it. But if somebody sends me a video, YouTube video that's long, I don't really want to devote half an hour to watching it. It's just too time consuming. Like send me an article or give me a bit more information. So, yeah. Shailene says, come on, you're dictators. What do you need a review for? <laughs> <laughs> Shailene, what are you doing as a dictator? Tell us. So. All right, I think that's enough for this episode. We're at 9.04 and we've done all right. I promise. Look, even two weeks, no submarines. Absolutely done and dusted on submarines. Really, Until the next AUKUS thing comes out. We've really <laughs> beaten a dead horse there. So we'll let that one go. We'll see what happens during the week. Maybe we'll talk about Russia a little bit, other things that come across. Who knows what's going to happen between now and then. I would never have suspected that that 3% figure of Greens voters who are against The Voice would be 13% a month later. You never know what's going to happen. So, all right. Oh, and a reminder, book club next month is going to be Kenneth Malick, Not So Black and White, A History of Race from White Supremacy to Identity Politics. Get hold of that one. That's going to be the book review at some stage. Oh, and I did get a message from Paul from Canberra. He wasn't happy with us making fun of the Governor-General's wife. He, he wants why. more of it. We <laughs> thought it was being we thought it was being unfair and picking on her, and that she was, yeah. All I can say, I did I did email back. Look, if she was just joining the local choir, choral group, and doing her stuff, there's no way I would criticise. That would be poor form to make fun of somebody in that situation. Like, yeah, but knock yourself out. But you're if representing Australia at government functions, you're not the Governor-General, you're the Governor-General's wife and it's apparent that you've inserted, she's inserting herself into these by giving these lame songs as some mm. form of speech and 
it's a poor reflection of us, so we're entitled to criticise. If it was things you were doing in private of our own accord, I would not criticise. But when you're purporting to represent the rest of us, I think you're fair game. Oh, mm. I agree wholeheartedly. You know, mm. besides, she's a bloody awful singer. Right. So, well, you see, Paul thought she was in tune, so and his <laughs> sentiments weren't nasty, but anyway. All right, we're off. We'll talk to you next week about something. Not sure what. Talk to you then, and bye for now. And a good night from me. And it's a good night from him.